This podcast is brought to you by the COVID-19 Global Research and Advocacy Platform for Civil Society. The establishment of this independent platform was 100% funded by African advocates. In today's episode... This is Maza Siyum of the African Alliance with a special note about this episode of the COVID-19 Conversations podcast. In this discussion with Professor Linda Gale Becker of the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation, we talk at length about the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 phase three vaccine trial known as Ensemble. Professor Becker is serving as co-chair of the Ensemble trial in South Africa. At the time of recording, we were looking ahead to the imminent launch of the trial in South Africa, and neither Professor Becker nor myself were aware that the trial had in fact been paused. The pause, which was due to a reported illness in one of the vaccine trial participants, was announced late on Monday, October 12th. In large clinical trials, such pauses are not unusual, and illnesses in volunteers, which are sometimes referred to as serious adverse events, are not necessarily linked to the product that is being tested. But the pause allows the trial's Data Safety Monitoring Board, often referred to as the DSMB, to review the information and determine whether the illness might have been related to the vaccine or was a result of coincidence. So only after the review is completed will the South African arm of this trial be launched. Today on the COVID-19 Conversations podcast, we are thrilled to have with us Professor Linda Gale Becker, a physician scientist and infectious disease specialist. Professor Becker is the chief research officer of the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation in Cape Town. She has had and continues to have an illustrious career in HIV and TB programming and research, working with some of the most vulnerable populations in South Africa. In addition, she is known as an advocate for human rights and access to health care. Along with all the other work she's doing, Professor Becker is now the co-chair of the South African arm of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 Phase three vaccine trial known as Ensemble. That trial is set to kick off in South Africa this week, and it's primarily in this capacity that Linda Gale has agreed to join us today. Professor Becker, we are so grateful to you for making the time in what I know is a very busy week for you. Welcome to the COVID-19 Conversations podcast. Thank you so much, Marza. Great pleasure to be with everyone. Thank you. So in the first seven months since the, the official case of COVID-19, the first official case of COVID-19 was announced in South Africa, I think it's fair to say that as we crawl into the final quarter of, of 2020, that this year has been, as the young people say, a lot. Um, so before we go into the specifics of the various professional projects you're juggling, how are you doing? I have that same feeling, Maza, that it has been going on for a long time, although amazing that it is only seven months. Uh, a lot has happened in the last seven months. I think we're, uh, we have mixed feelings. On the one hand, clearly watching what is happening in other parts of the world and continue to be horrified. Uh, but on the other hand, somewhat relieved that we are in a lighter state here in, in uh, the southern tip of Africa and very um, encouraged to be taking part in some of the terrific innovation uh, that is occurring. Um, and I think in, you know, 
participating in the enthusiasm uh, to find workable solutions to the epidemic for the world as soon as possible. Yes, yes. And um, related to that, I wanted to ask you about the branding of the DTHF. The DTHF used to be known as the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation. You're now the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation. Can you talk a little bit about this? Was this rebranding in response to COVID-19 or was it already in the works given the broadening of the scope of, of your projects beyond HIV? Yeah, Marza, it's actually two or three years in the making and, and very much, uh, you know, at the time of 2018 AIDS conference, we launched the Lancet IAS Commission at that conference. And it was very much around um, the recognition that the sustainable HIV response required us to think about repositioning HIV within a broader global health setup, uh, recognizing that HIV is with us for a long time to come. Uh, although again, there we've seen some terrific innovation, particularly in the prevention space. We recognize that we are going to have to walk the HIV road for quite a long time. Not sure how relevant that is to COVID as well. And maybe there's a salient lesson in there for us in COVID. Uh, but on the HIV front, uh, wanting to be sure that we sustain our response um, and saying that we're stronger together in terms of joining hands with other health priorities, global health in general, and saying how do we bring universal health care generally forward for everyone. And HIV, I think, is a fantastic exemplar of how we can do this um, in civil society beyond health itself to embrace broader global health uh, needs and, uh, and the agenda at large. So it was with that thinking that the Desmond Tutu HIV Foundation recognized that we were already paying attention to adolescent health, to sexual reproductive health, to mental health. And so we recognized it was time to say, let's call ourselves the Health Foundation, use the impetus and the lessons we've learned from HIV to catapult ourselves forward. And as it happened, COVID landed, you know, squarely in our laps, uh, not months after that. So um, maybe it was written in the stars. Uh, but here we are saying that, you know, we are stronger together when we learn lessons from one uh, health field into another. Um, and I think that's been particularly true as we've negotiated the last few months of the COVID response. And I saw that you recently uh, were a co-author on um, a piece in The Lancet titled Leveraging the Advances in HIV for COVID-19. So there, are there a few, a few key points that you think um, could be highlighted for our listeners about the lessons learned from HIV and how those have been applied to COVID-19, whether it's testing or community engagement work or, or um, contact tracing, anything like that? So, Marza, I think we've done some things really well. Some things I think we are maybe still needing to learn the lessons and maybe we're learning them slightly quicker because we've had HIV in the forefront. But I, I would say already we have definitely leveraged laboratory assays, laboratory platforms. The vaccine we're going to talk about literally has uh, catapulted off HIV vaccine work um, and, and other related vaccine work. 
there, I think there are lessons around how you do the research. We've actually utilized the research sites that have been uh, put on the ground over many, many years uh, to conduct HIV research. Uh, and of course, then I think there's some principles around how do you involve community? And maybe that is a, an aspect we haven't done as well in COVID. It took us some years to learn the importance of it in HIV. And, and I'm disappointed we haven't applied it as quickly in COVID as I think we should have. But I think we can still make up some lost ground there in terms of civil society's response and bringing community on board and thinking about non-pharmaceutical interventions and how you engage community to uh, bring a public health intervention home. So, you know, I think some wins and some losses in this regard. Um, but, I, you know, it is, as you say, early days, and I think there is still time to say, how do we take the lessons we've learned from other areas of medicine um, and apply them to today's crisis? Okay, well, that's a great segue into discussing the vaccine research. So the last time I checked a COVID-19 vaccine tracker, there were 44 COVID-19 vaccines in clinical trials on humans around the world. And of those, at least 35 that are in advanced phases of study. Um, South Africa is still, I believe, the only country in Africa hosting COVID-19 vaccine research. And please correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong on that. Um, there's the AstraZeneca trial, which was initiated in June, hosted by Wits University. The Novavax trial, which kicked off in August, also hosted by Wits. And now Johnson & Johnson's Ensemble trial, of which you are a co-chair, along with Professor Glenda Gray, of the Medical Research Council. So this is for the South African arm. Um, can you tell our listeners how the trial you are leading is different from the other two vaccines being implemented in South Africa? I know our listeners would be keen to know how the products are different if you're in a position to talk about that, as well as how the study itself is different. Yeah, I'm happy to describe the platform and the approach of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine um, and, and more specifically Ensemble. So as you've mentioned, there are a great number of vaccine candidates either in preclinical, early clinical or later uh, phase studies. Um, and many of them are using a variety of platforms, some very new to the field. So the genetic platforms such as messenger RNA or DNA are new um, and, and novel in this era of COVID. But um, listeners may have heard of the Moderna trial. So that is one trial that is using that uh, strategy. The interesting thing about Johnson & Johnson is that it is a vector-based uh, platform. Um, and the vector here, the if you like, the carrier that is bringing the antigen of interest into the human host is adenovirus 26. Now, adenovirus 26 is well known uh, to Johnson & Johnson. They have a great deal of experience with this particular vector. Uh, they have it in Zika. Of course, we have the HIV vaccine trials unfolding at this time. Very uh, um, exciting work. 
uh, but there are others, RSV, other vaccines that they've already got licensed and in the field that uses the Ad26. So the first thing to say to listeners is that's always reassuring when when a vaccine has already been tested because then we know there is a certain amount of safety associated with it. Uh, there is a lot of understanding of how it works. Uh, also, a lot of manufacturing capability around it. So that, again, helps to get something uh, catapulted forward when it isn't completely novel. It is building on previous work. All of the vaccines that I know of are focusing on a very specific part of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, namely the spike protein or the S protein. Now, the spike is the way that the virus attaches itself to the human host cell. And again, listeners might have heard about the ACE2 receptor. And if the listeners know HIV better, like me, <laughs> then what we're thinking of is the, you know, the, the, the way that the virus attaches itself to the CD4 receptor of the T cell. The equivalent of that is the ACE2 receptor. And then the spike protein is the same as the GP120 that we have on the HIV virus. So the spike protein, everybody has kind of used that thinking that's probably the most antigenic part of the virus. And so the uh, ensemble vaccine product is also honing in on the spike, as is the one that is currently in the chimp adenovirus, which is uh, the other vaccine trial that is on the go in in South Africa. So also using a vector-based approach, the chimp adenovirus in this case, it is quite novel and, you know, certainly moving along well and it seems that safety is not an issue at this point. Um, and then the Novavax is a uh, protein-based uh, vaccine. So all three somewhat different. What does make adenovirus stand out is that it is a single uh, shot. So instead of uh, a two-shot or two-injection approach that you have in both the Chimpad and the Novavax, with uh, ADD26 J&J Ensemble, we have just one single injection, which of course does make the administration of the vaccine much easier. Yes, and I think that would be really important to our listeners in South Africa, as well as in, in other countries on the continent, you know, trying to find a way to make the logistics um, simpler. I have also been told that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine does not require freezing, unlike um, mm. some of the other candidates, mm. which might also assist with the logistics if the vaccine is found to be safe and effective and is being, is being rolled out. Another question I had for you about the, the trial itself I have seen that you are recruiting participants over 60 years of age and participants with comorbidities. So a question for you about that is one, can you explain to our listeners what we mean when we say comorbidities and is the Johnson & Johnson, Johnson Ensemble trial the only one that is recruiting people with comorbidities and participants over 60 years of age? 
Yes, so it is a particular feature of this vaccine trial. And again, listeners may be very aware that unlike HIV, where we've tended to go, you know, focus on on younger people because younger people are are more likely uh, to become infected with HIV. When it comes to SARS-CoV-2, the part of the population that is hit the hardest and has the most severe disease appears to be our older members of, of the community and those who have comorbidities. So any vaccine that is going to be really worth its salt needs to be safe and effective in those populations. So uh, again, we want to actually test the vaccine in the population of interest. Um, And so uh, the way Ensemble is designed is to safeguard individuals at the same time. So it, it is being rolled out in a phased way. So the early phase is to go with the under uh, over 18, under 60, just to check initially, are we safe? Are we immunogenic and safe in that population? There will be a DSMB, as most trials have, but in this case, a DSMB monitoring safety. If a point is reached uh, and data shows that uh, all is well, then the study will open to members of the public over the age of 60 and even over the age of 65, and also those who uh, do have comorbidities. So again, uh, watching safety very carefully, making sure that, you know, there aren't any adverse events that would mitigate the use of a vaccine such as this, and this, of course, all happens in a blinded fashion. So the DSMB is monitoring this because they have access uh, to unblinded data, but the the trial team will only see blinded data in this regard. And, uh, you know, I think importantly, at the end of the day, we'll be able to say, was the vaccine safe and efficacious? And more importantly, was it safe and efficacious in those people who need it most? The endpoints of this study are similar to other other clinical trials uh, in the field today, where not only are we looking to prevent uh, COVID, but we're also looking to mitigate or reduce the severity if individuals do have breakthrough infection, that that infection does not lead to the kinds of severe disease that we are seeing in elderly people and in people with comorbidities. So so it, it has that sort of uh, m- more than one um, outcome, not only to prevent, but also if people become infected to then mitigate uh, the disease uh, down the pike. And that seems to be something, that last bit seems to be something that um, civil society and advocates might have to help scientists develop some messaging around, I would think, mm-hmm. you know, so this vaccine, or, or it seems that you're saying several of the vaccines that are being tested are not only being tested for, for full prevention from the virus, but also the idea that if people do get infected, the vaccine will mitigate the severity of the disease. Correct. And so that does lend a level of complexity to the clinical trial, because not only are we going to be picking up who gets COVID, but we're actually going to walk the the disease journey with them. 
Um, and so that definitely, you know, that moves the clinical trial teams beyond just the realm of prevention, but actually into treatment as well now. And so it must be noted that these clinical trials are more complex than, say, a purely preventive trial where kind of the disease onset becomes the end of the trial. Now we're actually moving into that next phase of therapeutics. Okay. And in the event that we have some listeners who think to themselves, I would like to participate in this vaccine Mm -hmm. trial. When we talk about comorbidities, if I have diabetes or if Mm -hmm. I am obese, you know, what kind of, are Mm -hmm. we talking about comorbidities? morbidities related to severity of COVID-19 disease? Yes, yes. So, you know, hypertension would be another one that we know of. HIV would be another one. So these are the kinds of uh, diseases where we know that there has been already some indication that SARS-CoV-2 may make that person, that person may be more susceptible to the infection uh, and may be more susceptible to more severe disease. Okay. And given these areas that you were highlighting for us, were there any specific concerns by the Ethics Review Board and how were those addressed? Did you feel that you had to do more explaining to the Ethics Review Board given the different layers of participants that were being recruited into this trial? You know, I think um, the review boards have been, I must just say, to take hats off to them because like everyone, we've had to move into double quick speed, um, you know, on, on everything. And they too have had to, one, learn very fast. And remember, we're all learning the science as we go. Um, and of course, reviewers have had to do that as well. Uh, whilst keeping in mind this tension of, fast but still efficient and thorough and maintaining excellence and maintaining regard for safety and ethical principles. So just to say that certainly my experience here in South Africa has been that everybody has has gone away and beyond in getting this right. Um, Yes, it has been, you know, it has needed some to and fro, but I don't think any more than would be the case when we present uh, reviewers with a new concept and and new medication or new uh, interventions. Remember, we've done this quite frequently over the last 10, 15 years in HIV, where we've had new antiretrovirals come along, new modalities, new ways of delivering antiretrovirals. And, and we've, in each case, we've, we've really worked with the review boards um, to understand and to engage. Uh, it's a two-way conversation. If you're just joining us, our guest on today's COVID-19 Conversations podcast is Professor Linda Gale Becker. Professor Becker is the Chief Research Officer of the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation and the co-chair of the South African arm of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 Phase 3 vaccine trial known as Ensemble. You've just brought up the issue of speed, Linda Gale, and that's something that I think is critical to talk about. This Johnson & Johnson Phase 3 three trial is being conducted in collaboration with something the United States government has dubbed Operation Warp Speed. This is an initiative overseen by the U.S. Departments of Defense, 
Institutes in Health that aims to accelerate the development, manufacturing, and distribution of treatments and vaccines for, for COVID-19. I can sense that you have been thinking a lot about um, these concerns related to speed. Um, obviously, warp speed isn't usually something we'd like to hear in relation to, to our medical care. Um, and the reason I bring this up is just to, to have our listeners think about what civil society can do to ensure that people trust the science despite the speed. Um, you know, recently the, the World Economic Forum um, conducted a survey of 27 countries and found that only 64% of South Africans say they would accept a COVID-19 vaccine when and if it becomes available. And unfortunately, South Africa falls within the group with the least intention to get vaccinated. So that, you know, the World Economic Forum's survey looked at, at countries where there were fewer than 70% of the people. So that falls into the, the, the lowest end. So what do you think scientists and civil society can do to increase this confidence in vaccines and science, especially when people are watching the speed with which this is happening? Thanks. It's such an important topic, Maza. So I like your tagline, by the way. I think we should um, claim it if you don't have uh, copyright to it. But, you know, trust the science despite the speed. Um, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it is a tension, particularly with a pandemic such as the one we're facing. And, and by the way, we walked this road with Ebola not too long ago, if you'll recall, just that Ebola tends to be, uh, you know, more concentrated in one part of the world. I think, you know, there is, an, there is obviously an urgent need to find a preventive measure as soon as possible. We certainly don't all want the world to be in lockdown uh, for, you know, forever. This is, this is patently not sustainable. Um, and I know, you know, m many, many, many individuals, institutions, administrations are pinning their hopes on, on e an effective vaccine. So one understands the speed um, and the speed is key because the sooner we can be sure we have a working safe vaccine, the sooner we can try and deploy it. Um, and so that speed is critical and one doesn't want to take away from that. Unfortunately, I think it's been politicized recently and I think the name warp is unfortunate. Um, and, and I think that that has also not helped our cause to have, you know, terms such as warp speed. And I know many aren't crazy about the terminology. Having said that, this cannot under any circumstances be at the expense of sound scientific principles of trial, how we go about trialing a new product. We can do things in parallel. We can think about, you know, uh, do, doing manufacturing whilst still testing a product. I know that is one of the ways that the the American uh, leadership for this is is doing it. So, you know, money matters perhaps less than timing. And so they're saying, let's upscale manufacturing, even if we don't know for sure uh, that all of these products are going to be effective at the end of the day. So that's one way to reduce time lag. What we cannot do is cut out any of the important steps of 
you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, making sure we have enough time of monitoring people with the vaccine in their arm to be sure that we don't have a safety signal. We need to be sure we have enough people who've been exposed to the product to be able to say with, with enough reassurance, this is a safe and, and effective uh, product. So there are some, luckily, there are some rules and some lines in the sand that we know already, and we must not allow those minimum standards to slip. Um, and I was much um, reassured this uh, the, in the last few days where we saw the Federal Drug Administration come out and say, we will not compromise on the time that people have to be in follow-up in order to say this is safe. And I think that is where civil society can be our watchdog. And again, this is a lesson we learn from HIV. We have seen the power of civil society and advocacy groups to say these minimum standards cannot be transgressed. Doesn't matter how strong the political pressure, no matter how you know much the power struggles come in, this has to, we have to maintain these minimum standards and we can watch each other in that regard. And maybe it's got easier now in the era of social media where everything is far more transparent. Although it must be said that, you know, fake news um, and, and, and pseudoscience can be an enemy here. So we need to know what data we can trust and which sources of information are reliable um, and then we need to hold each other account and where we feel that standards are slipping we need to be loud and create a great deal of good trouble around that because you know this is the way we can be sure that we get it right the first go there is no space for making a mistake a mistake will cost us an extraordinary amount of goodwill and it will erode further this very troubling pushback of vaccine hesitancy, you know, fear of, of, of medical um, uh, therapeutics, uh, worry about uh, reliable prevention. So, I, you know, I, I can't sort of say it enough that all of us, but this is where the advocates can really play a very important role, that all of us hold those standards to bear and to account, and we don't let standards drop in this regard. It, it must not happen under any, any condition. And related to this, of course, is community engagement. I know from all the work that you've done on HIV research and TB research over the years that you are well aware of the importance of community engagement in assuring, in ensuring that research goes well, but also that products are then accepted by communities. Um, I did a scan of the protocol for the Johnson & Johnson Ensemble trial and I didn't see much mention of community engagement or even of a community 
advisory board, which often is, is the minimum that is expected in terms of community engagement in clinical trials. So this was the, the global protocol. I would like you to talk to us a little bit about how you intend to conduct community engagement um, at South African level, you know, whether it is with local protocol development or just with the implementation of, of the trial as a whole. Well, so Marza, I think we're, you know, and, and you point out a very important point that this should be covered in a, a global protocol as well. So just just to say that I, I think in in vindication perhaps of the of the protocol developers, this again has been at incredible speed um, and is happening as we go. So the phase ones, phase twos are just ending. Um, as the data is getting into the phase three. So again, things have been happening in parallel, not cutting corners, but not allowing any lag time uh, between one and the next. So things have had to literally work, uh, you know, at the same time. Just to say that our strategy here, and this is the strategy of the COVPN, which is the large network that has been put together to expedite the rollout of these clinical trials have gone into sites that have been conducting HIV research in the past. And, you know, I want to say after 20 years of doing this and maybe not starting very well, I think we did get much, much better. And we have been really top of the game in many ways. There's still work to be done, but in terms of other fields, of clinical trial and clinical endeavor. I think HIV sites have really led the way in terms of good participatory practice, the understanding of the role of community and community engagement, the importance of, of you know, from one end to the other end, making sure that community is involved um, has been our mantra, as you know. And it is into those clinical trial sites that Ensemble will come. So every single one of those trial sites has to have an existing community advisory board. In many cases, those are cabs that have been in the works for years. They too are now having to pivot uh, in the same way that the researchers have had to do, the reviewers have had to do. Uh, We will need community on a dime to you know, pivot from what they know in HIV, TB and other uh, areas of, of research to now say, how do we engage around this SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID prevention trials? And um, you know, I think it does require all of us to get on board very quickly to say, how do we bring every, each other up to speed in this regard? How are we making sure that we are all equipped to deal with the new challenges of the day. So so step one is to go into trial sites that already at least have the foundational good participatory practice mechanisms in place. Step two is a great deal of training needs to happen in a very short space of time. And then step three, a lot of honesty and authenticity around you know, we are learning as we go. Let's join hands. Let's talk as much as we can, communicate. Let's be sure that we bring each other along in this regard. And then finally, where it isn't being done properly, that we quickly 
uh, intervene to say, well, you know, what's going wrong here? How do we get it right? How do we get this back on track? Does it need more training? Does it need more engagement? How do we, you know, mitigate uh, going down the wrong road? Um, And so I think it's that kind of community partnership with a great deal of mutual respect and, and as I say, frank honesty, I think is the way we're going to be able to do this in the time speed, the time frame that we have, but whilst ensuring the non-negotiable, you know, standards of excellence and ethical uh, principle that is required to do this right. Mm. And it seems like that's a key component of leveraging your work from the HIV research is this trust that the communities surrounding the sites already have in the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation about the community engagement and the respect that you have for the people who you serve. So in some ways that HIV work has really put you steps ahead maybe of of other organizations in different parts of the world who are rushing now to implement COVID-19 research. I, I would really hope so, Marza. I mean, you know, I think we would never have been where we are had it not been for amazing communities who have jumped in with us as well. I mean, this is a two-way process. Um, and those communities are, again, the communities that are battling this epidemic. And, and of course, we're relying on them uh, in the same way that I'm hoping they're relying on us to do good for each other, you know, and make sure that we've got each other's backs uh, in, in, in getting this to the end game. So, you know, it is very much a mutual shared respect here um, and, and, and a partnership. Okay, so that feeds in actually to another issue that I know people are very curious about. Um, What commitments, if any, have Johnson & Johnson made to the government of South Africa regarding the availability or the cost of this vaccine um, for South Africa and Africa as a whole, if it's found to be safe and effective? You know, you talk about the communities that you work with being those at highest risk. Um, And I think that the COVID-19 epidemic has shown the world or highlighted to people who maybe were not aware before, you know, the links um, between inequality and, and poor health or vulnerability to disease. So here you are working in a community that will need this vaccine, that is participating in the vaccine research. Um, what commitments have been made to, to provide the vaccine to people if it is shown to be safe and effective? Yeah, so I'll be giving my own, uh, you know, sort of opinions here and what I've seen. Um, you know, I'm sure that Johnson & Johnson leadership have, their own set of of responses to this absolutely critical question. There's no doubt that whilst we walk the road of the clinical trials, we have to today start the work on access and deployment and, you know, who gets the vaccine first? Um, How do we get those vaccines to the most needy, the most prioritised as soon as possible? Um, so, so this is my own rather sort of simple take on this is the first that having participated, I think that first of all, we've shown we'll be part of looking at the efficacy in our own populations. Um, we will know that it's safe or not in our own population. So that for me is the first very important step. Number two, I think when you've contributed 
to the world's understanding of a product, there's a moral right to you know access to that product. So I think that puts us in a strong position to say we contributed here, and so here we are. Here you know we are an important uh, grouping, if you like, in the world at large. And then thirdly, I do know that JNJ has um, come and and engaged. So first and foremost. It's helpful, of course, that, you know, Glenda Gray is very much involved in the process. And as president of the South African Medical Research Council, she serves a very important dual uh, process here, where not only bringing the clinical trial and its, its scientific advances forward, but also with the full understanding that her uh, you know, her her mandate is to the health of South Africa as the president of the Medical Research Council. So I know there is also investment from the South African Medical Research Council in this. Um, I know that uh, leadership from Johnson & Johnson has engaged, for example, with SAPRA. So we, with our own regulatory uh, authority, there has been a discussion of the trial, how it works, and always in those discussions, access is raised, as it should be. How does, you know, how will sufficient doses be made available and what, under what circumstances will those doses be made available? What I have heard is that there will not be a profitable uh, component to the vaccine uh, for South Africa in that regard. So um, that is what I have heard from the manufacturing company. But make no mistake, I think we as a, as a population, as a group of advocates, again, we cut our teeth on HIV. We now have access to some of the, really, some of the cheapest drugs in the world. Um, and I would say that has been through strong advocacy uh, with paying a great deal of attention to this, is this issue of access and health justice. Um, and so, you know, we need to keep our wits about us and, and be ready to walk this road as well. Um, vaccine access is absolutely key. That is the, if you like, the, the end chapter in this book that we're writing at the moment. And it cannot be deferred. It cannot be put on hold. It needs to be part of the same story. Um, so the step one is find out whether it works. Do we have a viable product? Step two, make sure it gets to the populations it needs to get to as soon as possible. And I think this um, is tied closely then to, to what many of our listeners are probably very interested in is the question of what role advocates can play um, going forward. You know, um, many of our, mm. our listeners in our, our network represent various civil society groups. Um, so I know that they're always sort of on call to find out what they can do um, to push the work forward in an equitable way. So we've already talked about um, the process of ensuring that the country and the continent, uh, people at large, trust the science despite the speed. So maybe that's one thing that civil society and advocates could participate in. Number two, making sure that 
community engagement is done in a robust fashion and doesn't sort of fall to the side um, while we try and do things as quickly as possible. But thirdly, it looks like ensuring that access questions are not left to the last minute are also um, uh, some tasks that civil society can already start thinking about now. Would you agree that those would be three key things or generally, you know, do you have any other suggestions for our advocates and civil society listeners um, here? What is, what is the way that um, advocates can successfully work with scientists um, in terms of COVID-19 research, COVID-19 um, treatment rollout, et cetera? No, I think those three, Maza, are just absolutely key. Um, and, you know, to continue in their really important role of being the eyes and ears in society um, and that critical link between those of us who are getting on with the, with the clinical aspects and the trial aspects. We sometimes get lost in the, you know, in the doing there. Um, and and having the advocates really hold our feet to the fire in a regard um, and make sure that we pay attention, um, that we hear what's happening on the ground, that we keep our eyes and ears open um, and that we hear, you know, all the narratives that are out there, I think is, is really important. Um, and I see our advocates as key partners in uh, ensuring that. Um, whilst working with us, and this is not, again, and, you know, again, this has been my experience in HIV. It's been a terrific partnership over many years where we have walked the road together to say that access is, is key and fundamental to this, um, not at odds with each other, but in, in lockstep. Um, so again, helping each other get that right. And then helping to really disseminate good information, the right information. I think helping public at large discern what is fake news and what's real news, what's important to 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 push, what are the battles that need to be fought, uh, what perhaps can be left for another day. Um, helping us really take all of that on uh, whilst getting the clinical trials done as quickly as possible, but in the most ethical, most participatory way. Um, I think that I'm looking forward to the usual level of partnership that we have enjoyed uh, in the past, that that will be our experience again. I hope so. And, you know, mm -hmm. I know, as I said earlier, that this is a very busy week for you. The, the trial is set mm -hmm. to start this week. Mm -hmm. um, so we are, of course, very great, grateful that you've mm -hmm. made time to be with us mm -hmm. um, today. Can you just give us um, just that basic information? When do you think the trial will start and how can people communicate with the trial leadership, even at a very basic level of wanting to volunteer? literally on the edge of having one or two trial sites in a position to get going um, and obviously they'll come in as they do as their various regulatory ethical and other needs uh, come in the door so um, uh, right at this minute I can't say exactly what day um, but we will stay very close I know that there's an announcement to be made um, and so listeners can be watching that carefully, watching the media. 
how to get involved again we will be making sure that social media is very loud in this regard where the clinical trials um, are going to be launched first um, and there will be uh, a lot of social media um, ways of advertising this so that people can hook in um, and and get involved. Uh, there will also be numbers. I'm sorry, I don't have them with me right now. But again, social media will be uh, making this available um, at the very least on uh, if you're in our area here in the Western Cape, then at the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation, uh, there will be announcements, uh, but also the South African Medical Research Council. Um, and then, as I say, a list of of research sites that are active as they open will also be made uh, public. Okay, and I know that you are relatively active on Twitter. So if people want to tweet at Linda Gale directly, she is at uh, Linda Gale Becker on, uh, on Twitter. And I'm sure that you will be sharing any information as it comes up there. Certainly, um, and again, also watch our uh, website at the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation because that will also keep people up updated as, as it unfolds. Okay, okay. And just to pull back a little bit um, in relation to this crazy year and uh, COVID-19, what has been the most unexpected thing you've learned in 2020 in relation to COVID-19? Has there anything, been anything that has surprised you? I suppose I'm, I'm somewhat naive when I tell you that I was surprised. Um, and yet I, I often say, you know, AIDS is still political, <laughs> implying that, you know, uh, HIV, as political as it was, continues to be politicized. I think I was just somewhat shocked at how quickly and um, disappointingly SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19 became politicized. I think, um, you know, that somewhat shocked me still that something as fundamental as health, and I certainly do believe that health is an absolutely fundamental right, human right, um, that it became a political football that was used to, to my mind, nefarious agenda ends rather than, you know, a, a wholesale effort to try and reduce suffering and reduce um, mortality around the world because of this virus. So that, I mean, sadly, uh, that, that shocked me. Um, on, on the happy side, um, and maybe I wasn't as surprised, but I've been so pleasantly uh, pleased to see how efficiently and effectively the, my HIV world, my friends, peers, the communities at large who have been entrenched in HIV was able to pivot, to roll up their sleeves and say, how can we help with this new epidemic and bring amazing lessons to bear um, that I think gave us an incredible jumpstart on, on this epidemic. And that has been, as I say, I'm not surprised because I know their resilience and I know their innovation and I know their creativity, but it has been incredibly um, satisfying to see how quickly the HIV field has, has brought their best efforts uh, to 
try to reduce the impact of HIV, of SARS-CoV-2. And I think you've actually already answered my next question. I was going to to, to ask you, given you know, that we've mentioned how difficult this year has been, but also the huge amount of research um, and other work underway at the moment um, as the world tries to find solutions to the COVID-19 pandemic, um, I was going to ask you with all of your expertise and experience, what the one thing was in this whole landscape that you are optimistic about. But it seems like you've already mentioned one thing that has given you um, optimism, the sense of people coming together from the HIV field and other fields to try and address this new pandemic. Would that be the one thing that stands out? I think it does. Um, on, a, on a sort of biomedical side, Mars, I would add that I think the, um, the amazing work being done on monoclonal antibodies, so the passive transfer of immunogens um, for those uh, who, you know, who are familiar, we're, we're testing this for the first time as a conceptual idea in HIV, and that's the AMP studies, and we'll hopefully be seeing the readout from the two big trials that have just finished called AMP, um, Antibody Mediated Prevention. Uh, will be coming out that will inform the HIV field. But I think probably, and again, it's been somewhat politicized recently with with the treatment of the President of the United States of America, but I do think that that is an innovation uh, that has a great deal of promise and potential. Um, and I think we'll be seeing and hearing much more about the passive transfer of immunogens whilst we continue to hold up great hope uh, for active immunization and that being, you know, the vaccine trials themselves. Um, so I think it's a, it's a, it's an amazing time to be alive in terms of, of just pharmaceutical innovation, but also amazing human, uh, creativity, innovation and resilience. Um, you know, I think we, we, We've achieved a lot in these seven months, and um, I'm confident that we will we will overcome this challenge. And this again will set us on a good footing for future pandemics, um, when and if they should uh, arise on our doorstep again. Mm. And unfortunately, um, it seems like they might. So I'm I'm glad that we're all working together to to face those. And um, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak, speak with us today, Linda Gale Becker. Um, but before we wrap up, um, are there any other points that you would like to make, things that you wish I had asked about COVID-19, the work being done in South Africa, the ensemble trial, or any, uh, any of the other vaccine work or COVID-19 work um, ongoing at the moment? No, I don't think so, Mars. I think we've we've covered uh, we've covered a lot of work, and I appreciate uh, the opportunity to share some of my ideas with you. Thank you, Professor Linda Gale Becker is the Chief Research Officer of the Desmond Tutu Health Foundation in Cape Town. She is a longtime activist, comrade, friend. Um, we really, really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us, Linda Gale. Thank you. Real pleasure, Mars. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for engaging today. We hope today's discussion has resonated with you and provided you with evidence-based information to strengthen your research and advocacy efforts as we work together to ensure that COVID-19 research is truly accountable and community-owned. 
Make sure you never miss an episode and join the platform by emailing info at africanalliance.org.za. Thank you for listening.